Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. It's time today for another book club. Yay! Yay! And this one is a listener suggestion. A few of you suggested it. And... My therapist highly recommended it for me. Yeah. Um, and to all the listeners who we were like, hey, we're doing this book. They're like, yay, we've already got it. It's time for us to read it too. So hope you guys are joining in as well as hope you guys are going to send us your takes as well. Yes, absolutely. So we're doing Untamed by Glennon Doyle, who is an activist, one of the founders of the nonprofit Together Rising. She's a speaker and an author. Um, it's a memoir of several short and interconnected nonlinear anecdotes um, around themes of motherhood, womanhood, love, grief, faith, sexuality, race, depression, and finding and trusting your true self. It's a story of destruction and rebirth, of constantly searching out our truest and most beautiful life. And not surprisingly, it was recently Reese's book club, Hello Sunshine book pick, as in Reese Weatherspoon, and if you saw the photo of them doing the Zoom chat. Yeah. Um, and a New York Times bestseller since it came out in March 2020. And apparently just recently it was on like the Christian self-help. <laughs> yes, which I find fascinating. <laughs> which is hilarious because I believe they denounced her after this book came out and her announcement to her marriage to Abby Wambuck. So uh, it is, it's really interesting. And I think she did find some uh, hilarity to that, as we, did we. Yeah, and... um. That's something I really appreciated that she touched on in the book, actually, is how there she she did have this Christian audience, and some of them followed her through this transition um, of, like, what transition in terms of her books and what they were about and the stories that were in them. Right. Um, and, and some really would reach out to her and, and say, you know, I love you and I followed you and I'm struggling with my religion says that some of the things you're doing don't right. fit in and how do I square that and having those honest conversations around that yeah. point. Um, she once was a Christian mom blogger. Uh, that's not mm -hmm. a surprise and is, is the author of two other books, again, which were on the Christian level, Christian self-help level. Um, Love Warrior and Carry On Warrior, The Power of Embracing Your Messy, Beautiful Life, which is a really nice title. It is. And one of the things I really loved about this book is it's very open and um, vulnerable and spiritual, but in a way that I can connect to because some of that stuff, which we're going to talk about, I have a knee-jerk like, nervousness around. Mm -hmm. Um. But I haven't read these other two books, but I imagine that it's similar in that nature of just being really open and honest that you can connect to it. Uh, and this is a very quote-heavy episode because there are so many amazing quotes in it. And it's also just the nature of how it's written uh, and told lends itself to quotes because it captures the essence of her message. Her writing is very nuanced. It's, it's sort of hard to summarize um, some of the things that are very personal but also relatable uh, that she is touching on without just quoting it. <laughs> right, right, which is too easy to do. I know one of the listeners who wrote that she is going to start all of her sentences with, but the book says, and I'm like, yes, <laughs> I understand this. I understand yes, this I idea. Do, <laughs> and of can course, I just quote yeah, I'm just entire gonna just, chapters? I'm just going to just sit here and quote things. And this morning, Maker, uh, the Maker's Women Instagram actually had a quote <laughs> posted from her <laughs> book as well. So it's really easy to do. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, this is a little different from the last two books that we did, which were very much fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, so very different when it's a memoir. Um, but to get to the basics of the book, uh, the memoir follows author Glennon Doyle's decision to divorce her husband and pursue love with the woman she's fallen in love with, Abby Wambuck. And by the way, it took me to the end of the book because I don't know much about her history to figure out, oh, that's the women's soccer. Oh, oh. Well, it's funny <laughs> that you say that because I actually... Um, I'm not super into soccer, but I, I would say I am more into it than maybe the average American is. And a lot of my friends are super into it, especially women's soccer. Mm -hmm, me too. So when she's at the book conference after they've just met, and she sort of mentions in passing, oh, she's a soccer star, and all those people were waiting in line to get 
her autograph, I remember having the thought like, oh, I wonder if it's Abby Wambuck. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, later, I was like, like, oh, of course it is. I was like, I know one Abby, but I don't, no, that's good. That's not, that's not the one. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. I did yeah. the same thing. <laughs> uh, but back to this. <laughs> it's filled with instances before, during, and after that delve into her taming, quote unquote, and the work she put into, quote unquote, untaming. Um, and many involve her children, which is very much expected and other family members and the support of women in her life as well as her husband. And it is like, I love the way she does bring in the whole fold as a reawakening for each one of them. Yeah, yeah. And in this memoir, Doyle details the eating disorder she struggled with for years when she developed at the age of 10 or 11, her struggles with alcoholism and drug use and spending 16 years being numb, as she called it, and the subsequent sobriety when she discovered she was pregnant. Her husband's infidelity leads to years of indecision of what she should do, leave or stay. A lot of researching online. I totally connected with this too of like, what to do when your husband's cheated and <laughs> but there are children involved and just looking at all these articles that are telling you different things and being so unsure of, oh. I often joke that Google is my therapist. Yes. So I'll be like, Google. Well, Google's I'm my doctor. This sad feeling. <laughs> yeah, Google's my doctor. I was like, all right, symptoms. Am I dying? Okay, great. <laughs> and Google's like, Samantha, no. <laughs> I'm also convinced Google for some reason thinks I'm a cat. And I don't know why. I could see that. I'm starting to Google. I don't know what you see in me that I don't see, but... Well, Netflix doesn't think I exist. So there that is. <laughs> Just non-existent. Are you there? Are you sure you're there? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, okay, but back to the book, Glennon Doyle. So that decision to leave her stay her husband is further complicated when she falls in love. At first sight, uh, it's a beautiful scene with Abby at this book conference. Through self-discovery and learning to trust her inner voice, what she calls the knowing, capital K, uh, Doyle realizes that the eating disorder, the alcoholism, were all symptoms of her denying her discontent, of her trying to be a, quote, good woman. Right, and the book opens up with her and her family at the zoo and watching a cheetah chase a jeep with a ragged pink bunny attached to the back. As they drove away, she caught a glimpse of the cheetah who had been raised in the wild, stalking next to the fence taught, ready to stalk, to attack. Uh, the wild very much still a part of the cheetah. Um, and she wants to yell at the cheetah. And I think it was one of those moments because her daughter had so many questions. Um, mm -hmm. Quote, you're not crazy. You're a goddamn cheetah. And she examines her own taming, which started at the age of 10, uh, when we learn how to be good girls and good boys. Yeah, I love that quote. And it comes back many times throughout the book. Yeah. You're a goddamn cheetah. <laughs> Love it. So when it comes to themes, a big one is the patriarchy, dun dun dun, dun and white supremacy. Um, so we wanted to read this quote. It's kind of long, but again, I just thought so good, yeah. so exemplary of what this book is about and what how it relates and fits so well with our show and what we talk about. Our culture was built upon and benefits from the control of women. The way power justifies controlling a group is by conditioning the masses to believe that the group cannot be trusted. So the campaign to convince us to mistrust women begins early and comes from everywhere. When we are little girls, our families, teachers, and peers insist that our loud voices, bold opinions, and strong feelings are too much and unladylike. So we learn not to trust our personalities. Childhood stories promise us that girls who dare to leave the path or explore get attacked by big bad wolves and pricked by deadly spindles, so we learn to not trust our curiosity. The beauty industry convinces us that our thighs, frizz, skin, fingernails, lips, eyelashes, leg hair, and wrinkles are repulsive and must be covered and manipulated, so we learn not to trust the bodies we live in. Diet culture promises that controlling our appetite is the key to our worthiness, so we learn not to trust our own hunger. Politicians insist that our judgment about our bodies and futures cannot be trusted, so our own reproductive systems must be controlled by lawmakers we don't know and places we've never been. The legal system proves to us again and again that even our own memories and experiences will not be trusted. If 20 women come forward and say, he did it, and he says, no, I didn't, they will believe him while discounting and maligning us every damn time. And religion, sweet Jesus, the lesson of Adam and Eve, the first formative story I was told about God and a woman 
was this. When a woman wants more, she defies God, betrays her partner, curses her family, and destroys the world. We weren't born distrusting and fearing ourselves. This was part of our taming. We were taught to believe that who we are in our natural state is bad and dangerous. They convinced us to be afraid of ourselves. So we do not honor our own bodies, curiosity, hunger, judgment, experience, or ambition. Instead, we lock away our true selves. Women who are best at this disappearing act earn the highest praise. She is so selfless. Can you imagine? The epitome of womanhood is to lose oneself completely. That is the end goal of every patriarchal culture because a very effective way to control women is to convince women to control themselves. Mm, so many good things from that. I know. So, many good things. so a part of this is getting women to reject all other emotions other than happiness, to not feel these other things or to squash them down and deny them completely. And she tells a story of asking her children and some of their friends if they were hungry and witnessing the boys looking inward and answering very quickly, yeah, I'm yeah. hungry, um, uh -huh. while the girls pause, look around, look outward, and conducting a silent poll before they answer. And saying no. Um, yeah, and... and so much of what she touches on in that very long quote, I really, really relate to. And that's actually one of the reasons my therapist recommended this book to me was she was saying that I, I always, I struggle with trust. And I know I've talked about it a lot before and trusting myself. And, and she was saying this book is a great example of how so many women do struggle with that, where you just don't feel like you have a solid foundation to to trust yourself to know what's what's good for you and what's right for you. Yeah, I agree with that. I think for me, um, it took me a long time, and I know I've told the story about the fact that with the religious idea of what women should be, that I was I was never that woman, and I always felt guilty, and I always felt like I was doing it wrong, and there was a part of me that felt like I am not a good person because I cannot fit this mold. And mm -hmm. part of the reason that I I was disjointed from it and I walked away. Um, for lack of better terms, uh, was because I realized those things that did not agree with religion and the godly woman were the things that kept me alive as a kid. Like, it helped me survive. These are the tactics that I was able to use in order to literally remain alive in orphanages, in abusive situations where I could have just fallen apart. And I was like, this, that doesn't make sense. Why would God give me these things to survive and then come back and say, that's not, that's not what you need to be. That's not who I wanted you to be. Right. And it was just like, this, no, I can't, I can't align with that. So for me, right out of college, it didn't make sense anymore. And I had to trust the fact that this guilt was not necessarily something because I felt guilty of, as we talked about before, in our previous mini, it's not something that, I should feel guilty of, but something that I should embrace because it helped me become the person that I am to survive, literally to survive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and recognizing those things, we're going to come back to, right. to religion because Samantha and I both grew up in really religious right. small towns um, and the impact that that had. Uh, but also the happiness thing that, whole not feeling anything other than happiness. That right. That's something that has shaped so much of what I've done. And not my happiness, other people's happiness. Right. Um, it's almost, it's so hard for me not to think of making other people happy first. That's like my thing. Right. And then I'll think about, oh, well, I really didn't want to do that or right. whatever. And that kind of thing leads into rape culture and, and um, women not knowing what they want when it comes to relationships and sex and it being secondary to male pleasure. Right. So, uh, another thing that really stuck with me in this memoir is uh, a section where she, Glenn Doyle, realized that despite consciously raising her, her girls to be feminist, she wasn't necessarily doing the same with her son in the sense of she wasn't standing up for him and championing his vulnerability, his sensitivity, um, like she was for saying, oh, yeah, my girls are strong. And, you know, if someone called them bossy, she would kind of flip that and be like, oh, no, she knows what she wants. She wasn't doing the same thing for her son for the more, quote, feminine or feminized, feminine-coded traits. Um, and then she saw the outcome of that on the news in terms of mass shootings and suicide and violence against women and did just that we need to be 
cultivating that in boys as well. And she wrote about it, being an American boy is a setup. We train boys to believe that the way to become a man is to objectify and conquer women, value wealth and power above all, and suppress any emotions other than competitiveness and rage. Then we are stunned when our boys become exactly what we have trained them to be. And FYI, currently I am researching for our next Monday Mini or an upcoming Monday Mini about uh, gender differences in the pandemic. Right. Uh, we were talking about the article where it actually says men are less likely to wear it because they feel like it's not masculine enough. <laughs> wear a mask, yeah. And it's literally not only a, making this whole thing last longer, it's killing them. Right. It just is kind of like, wait, how did that become a gendered thing? I, I thought wearing masks was kind of cool. I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> like, like, I remember uh, my partner who is really big into Red Dead as well as Cyberpunk got excited <laughs> because he was I like, wear a mask <laughs> right, in public, and I'm going to wear it like this. And I was like, hey, that, what, what just happened? What just, what just happened? <laughs> what just happened? Uh, which is absurd in such a way, of, such a, an obvious statement of how misogynistic our culture is that they would rather look quote-unquote, be masculine, then be alive. <laughs> yep, and we see that at um, the very top. Right. And and by the way, so as we're talking about it, she does talk about sexism and racism as poison in the air we breathe, as in it's just inoculated into our lives no matter what. It's in the environment around us. And, she, and the fact that the program poison of racism was pumped into us may not be our fault, but getting it, out is sure as hell our responsibility, which I think says a lot, and, and recognizing our knee-jerk conditioning around successful women and then moving past it. I know we're going to talk a little more, right, about racism in a bit where she talks specifically about being called out for overtaking a discussion about black women um, in the culture. And I think it's a, a really interesting point of view. And she never really talks about whether or not uh, how it was resolved but it is an mm-hmm. interesting take on, on the, all the conversation and her thought process as a white woman, a white woman of prominence and what to do and how to be a person who can combat and be an ally. Yeah, I really loved her take on that. On It's just poison in the air we breathe, right. um, which is a really great way to think of it and to hear her sort of working through her own thoughts of how to be the best ally and what right. does that look like and and listening to black women specifically about okay, how can I best be of help, um, was really, I, I appreciated her honesty and her take on that. So we do have a lot more to talk about with this book, but first we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we're back with our discussion around religion because uh, Glennon Doyle is, I don't know if religious is the right word anymore, but very spiritual. She's spiritual. Yeah. Um, So she talks a lot about finding God within yourself, not within a religion or the church and the structures that come with it. She addresses how you should ask, like, what is the power structure within this church, who benefits from it, like who is giving you this message, and they might not be bad intentioned. They might be, but plenty of times they're good intentioned, but you should just ask the question. Yeah. Well, she she did make a statement when she and her husband, they went to church because they found uh, or they received a newsletter or a letter saying that they would have free childcare. And so they went to this, and, and as they were listening, it was good, it was great, and then it moved on to them talking about homosexuality as a sin and abortion being a sin and, and all these stances. And she was very upset and and actually came to the pastor and had a strong conversation with him. And it just resolved with, you know, you do not understand what God is wanting. He's like, you're leaning right. on your own understanding and not on God's, which is a, a Bible verse, obviously. And then she talks about how there are three options here, that you can remain here and be silent and just fall into it. You can stay here, try to fix it and fight against it, or you can choose to go and find a healthier place for you. And it was a really interesting take. And I think that's exactly, I remember, um, and we're going to talk a little more about it, but I remember as I'm reading this book, I was very heavily involved 
um, in religion. I was so heavily involved. I was teaching children's ministry. I was teaching women's ministry. I was traveling around the Southeast, uh, teaching colleges. I was leading women in all these ways because I felt like, you know, this is the only way I can be a leader, which is my call. And then also growing up in the faith and believing in faith um, and needing that to feel like I could survive and cope because nothing in my past made sense. But if I could have the arc of God has a plan, then I'm good. Mm-hmm. And then going into that, trying to figure out, well, how do I counter this? This doesn't make sense. And then staying, I remember I refused to leave that church, even though I would disagree with so many things, because I'm like, I will be, I will not be the person who runs away. I will fight mm-hmm. to make change. I will be the change. It didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. It was very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and just, again, like being told I'm being too much, I'm saying too much, I'm being too loud, and I'm asking too many questions. Mm-hmm. And I remember having this breakaway from religion that was so catastrophic to my heart that it felt like a death had happened because I clung to that so heavily. Like This was a part of my identity. And then, then breaking that away from me was such a painful, painful part of who I was. Also. I had started in the social work world and just the disgustingness <laughs> of mm-hmm. humanity half the time. Yeah. It was it was so cumbersome for me to to be able to like I can't juggle these correctly in my my heart and my soul and what mm-hmm. I want uh, to do for others whatever and also I cannot adjust myself to this alignment of what I'm supposed to be as a female, as a woman, as a vagina-carrying body, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Um, And then to try to have to deny others who have struggled with their identity as well and being told you're wrong, that just, it wasn't, it just didn't fit. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is so freaking painful to understand what I, I leaned on for so long has so many incorrect and really heartbreaking and um, damaging, damaging ideas for others around me who I would want to be there for. So it was, yeah. it was definitely one of those moments of like, oh, what do I do? Yeah, you know. And then walking away from it, and and I just reading Glennon's take, and, and she is so positive. Like she never really talked about the haters much. She said that yes, she was definitely called out, uh, called a heretic, and she was all these things. Um, she was disavowed by the church, um, mm-hmm. by a church, uh, and so it, it it was very it resonated with me in that level of like it wasn't that big. Obviously, yeah. not pe- people didn't see that as a thing. Um, because I didn't live my, I didn't have to change my life that much. Other than this doesn't right. coincide anymore. This yeah. doesn't make sense. Um, but it, it, I could just imagine the loss. And I love that she's so positive that she leaned into the positivity and opening and, and the love from others. But like for me, all I could think of is like that loss, yeah, of that part of myself. Yeah. Um. I was really into religion as well until 14, 13 or 14. And I would like donate. I volunteered. I donated my allowance to the church. I like read the Bible several times all the way through. Um, and then after I, I had all these bad experiences, I, I remember the day and I just thought, nope, I don't believe this. And so many of my friends growing, I'm sure you can relate in a, a religious town, so many of my friends acted as if I had done the worst thing by, in their minds, like they can't imagine anything worse than being an atheist. I had friends tell me, imagine you love someone and you know they're going to run off a cliff. Would you let them run off the cliff, Annie? Would you let them? Like, that uh, happened to me at work. <laughs> I was a professional and they said that to me. <laughs> that exact statement. I was just like, I, I love your sentiment. Thank you for caring. Yeah. But I'm good. <laughs> Yeah, and it was just frustrating because, you know, I do, I honestly do appreciate that, especially if you really believe it. Um, but I don't know that you needed to make me feel so terrible about myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my parents were very concerned and they were like, oh my God, please, we raised a good child. You, of course, you. And I, so I promised them I would research it because I said, I don't know if I ever would have believed this if you hadn't raised me to believe right, it. Right. And I was that was just the type of kid I was, and I researched all these other religions, and I came back to my parents and said, nope, 
Don't buy it. And they were like, okay, well, we we will respect your decision. Right. But I just remember the fear. I was legitimately afraid of going to hell. Mm -hmm. Just, I would lie awake thinking about it. Well, that's a very um, orthodox idea in uh, Protestant Christianity, especially in the U.S. (laughs) Yeah. And I do, I want to say here, like, um... (laughs) My my mom is really religious, and I'm my heart is actually endeared because she's running Zoom sermons right now, and I like that's like the cutest thing. <laughs> I love it, and I don't really have I have no issue with people who are religious at all, especially if it helps you and you don't like right. use it to restrict other people's freedoms and rights. Right. I do, unfortunately, have because I had such a bad experience. Um, I have sort of a knee-jerk fear around it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Glennon Doyle talks about that with Abby mm-hmm. having and a similar thing. That. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I'm the, I'm the same way. I have a lot of great friends, and they're very close. We're still very close. who are very religious. Um, but they're good people, and they understand the difference between a church idea and standpoint and a biblical idea and standpoint. And even if they disagree, which is on all of them, they still know to love. I think that was the biggest part to me is that, you know, I can't be a part of something that causes so much division and hate that I, I that I, I just, I can't imagine, especially if those are the people, and if you look at the Bible and like the actual writings of Jesus Christ, if he existed, if he was, as they said, the eternal forgiveness, which, oh my God, listeners, they probably turned this off. They're like, what the hell is happening? Um <laughs> But it's a very pure and loving idea. I mean, exactly what it is, is everyone is accepted. No one can do this on their own. And they all need something else because everybody is flawed. And that's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. That's the biggest portion to that. And I think that's where I struggle when they start breaking down to the individuals. And these are the practices. And this is how I interpret this. We're going to bring the Old Testament, which, by the way, if we go with the biblical idea that Jesus is the New Testament, that means he overshadows the Old Testament. Like, it literally no longer applies. But that's just a whole other view, which I've definitely had many conversations on. But the the overall is, too, I'm also very much against anyone oppressing someone who needs to believe because they need that faith. Why in the hell am I going to try to take someone's faith and heart away from them? That's not yeah. my right either. And no. again, I may not agree. And I, I think I, I just call myself spiritual. There's never... I have believed for so long, for so, so long, of a greater power that it's hard for me to let that go. That's one of those things that are like, it's ingrained in me. However, do I believe that, I'm not going to get too into my beliefs, but am I a churchgoer who believes in the system, who believes that everybody, the pastor and all these people are infallible and they are the ultimate uh, conversation? Mm -hmm. No, no, absolutely not. Um, But I think it is a beautiful sentiment. And when you look at every religion, when you look at the core of what it is, there is goodness there that has yeah. been tainted. Um, yeah, it's been usurped by like patriarchal right. ideas. I mean, look at the story of Eve alone. I know. Oh my gosh. So a quote we wanted to read from from the book, maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning. Maybe she was meant to be our model, our own wanting. Eat the apple let it burn. Let and it I burn. loved that. I love that because I remember hearing that story and thinking, oh, woman ruined this all for us. Oh, of course. She's the reason we're in so much pain. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And I do, before you move on, I also want to touch on like I had friends who their parents, uh, like if they were going through something really um, tough or struggling with depression, their parents would say, pray. Right. Which is great. But I, I've seen it time and time again where they really needed help. Right. And they needed something else, like maybe prayer and. <laughs> right. Um, so <laughs> lots of thoughts there, lots of thoughts. Right, and I agree with you because I uh, actually, I was very depressed teenager as well. And my parents were very religious. And I, they have learned since then the benefits of therapy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it took them, till I was an adult, and them apologizing to me for not recognizing the trauma that I was going through and not just saying, Jesus will save you. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, sure, maybe, if you want to think that way, but I definitely struggled and have been damaged because of that. 
Yeah. Um, and, and also, I did want to talk specifically, it's a very like small portion in Nasra Abbey. Glennon and Abbey go to a church, and uh, at one point, you can see, you know, she talk, expresses about how Abby's really nervous and doesn't want to really be there. And she turns and talks to her. And um, at one point, Glennon says, you know, when you left the church, you thought you were only protecting you and away from God, the people, and religion. But actually, her take was it was protecting the God in you when you left that church. And that was so mm-hmm. harmful. Um, and Abby says with the section, I grew up in the Catholic church. The church taught me I was sin and an abomination. And the way Glennon explained God and church freed me from those lies. And I thought that was such a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. Yeah, I love that too. I love the, that take on it's inside you. Mm-hmm. And, and it was protecting you. Yes, exactly. Um, and of course, we couldn't go without talking about love and marriage, which is all throughout the book as she finds new love. She leaves old loves. Like, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and when she admits to her therapist that since her husband's infidelity, she doesn't want to have sex with him, which, by the way, she's not the only one. This makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, and her fury with him. And I love her description about how angry she is just staring at him while he's minding his own business, but she's yeah. fuming. Um, mm-hmm. And the therapist suggests she try blowjobs because, you know, they're less intimate. Yeah. Uh, oh. Whoever this therapist is, I was like, I've, can we just denounce them as a therapist? That's what my therapist said. She was like, <laughs> oh, I hate it. That, that thing stuck out to me so badly. Yeah. And we've all heard, I bet like most women have heard this. Yeah. A similar like, you know what? Uh, you've got to give him something. Right. And I will <laughs> say like, even with family members who are very religious, when they went to counseling, or even went to their, uh, you know, elders in the church to get advice or get seek counseling that way or whatever. They were told, and and it would be the females would be in a abusive or uh, a relationship that he was unfaithful and it was very unhappy. They were told, but you know, what Jesus demands of you, what God demands, is that you work it out because you know there's two in this marriage. There must be something wrong mm-hmm. with both of you, and and you need to work it out too, and you need to please your husband, and you need to be there for your husband, and it's just like. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and so she, I really loved this her take on it too. Um, from this quote, I quit buying the idea that a successful marriage is one that lasts till death, even if one or both spouses are dying inside it. I'd take this vow to myself. I'll not abandon myself. Not ever again. Me and myself, we are till death do us part. Right, and of course. She didn't want this for her children either and didn't want to pass that along. And And we've talked about this a few times on our show and uh, how we often talked with other people, unhappy people about relationships and why do they stay? Why do they keep hanging on? Um, and oftentimes they're A, saying that it's for their children or being told that it's because of their t- children they should stay. Um, and what it's really teaching is teaching these kids, this is the norm in relationships. Whatever unhappy circumstance that I'm in, that's a relationship. You just have to deal with it. And it's such a yeah. sad state to see, especially when we are taking it deeper, talking about relationships with domestic violence, abuse, all of that, and children seeing that as the norm and as being okay. And even though they try to grow out of it, I mean, honestly, Chris Brown is a great example about how he came out, about how he came out, about how he would never do that because he's seen that, he grew up in that. And then just as you see, it was a catalyst to his relationships. That's all how they all seem to be ending for him, or at least involved in to a point. This volatile point of the relationship is what he knows. So that's yeah. that's love, right? And even though he knows in his mind, he knows up front that this is not true. It's so ingrained in them that it, it's not that this is this is the way it is, and this is how I have to deal with it. That they can't let that go. Almost. Yeah, I mean, it's the tools you learn when you're growing up of how to deal with relationship, and you can get new tools, or you can get you can change those tools, but it is very hard and requires a lot of work. And also just to say, um, especially as someone, I've never been in a um, long-term marriage, barely a long-term relationship, but I have been a woman who like should have left and didn't leave. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to dismiss, like, it is hard. It absolutely is hard. Oh, yeah. um, but I, I really appreciated the way she reframed it of, we should be thinking about doing it for the kids in a different way. Right. It's also part of the thing 
that it's so hard is because it's ingrained in us that it should be that hard and it should be that difficult and we shouldn't do it. Like our natural instinct is, I have to fix this because this is partly my problem. Right. And that's a big part of this book. And I know we're going to touch on it at the end is going back to that only feeling happiness. She said, you've got to feel everything Mm -hmm. and it is going to hurt. It's going to suck, but you can't protect your kids from everything. And you got to have that moment and go through it together and then move on. Um, And she doesn't talk about this too much in the book, but I did want to bring up her ideas around sexuality because she is a big proponent of fluidity and kind of like, I'm not even sure we need these labels. (laughs) Um, And so here's a quote from that that I loved. And what if I demand freedom not because I was born this way and can't help it, but because I can do whatever I choose to do with my love and my body? Yes. I I love love that. I love that it was framed with the grandmother <laughs> yeah. asking the question, why is everybody gay? Yeah. She's like, I don't, it's just more freedom to express ourselves, perhaps. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just like that because I know a lot of times people say that they mean it in the best way of like, you can't help, you shouldn't be punished if you're born this way. But you probably shouldn't be punished anyway if right. it's your body, your choice, right. your love. Then. And it's consent. Yeah. Um, and that's also... Of course, in everything, she talks about humanity and just being human and being yourself. Um, and being human is not hard because you're doing it wrong. It's hard because you're doing it right. Uh, and you'll never change the fact that being human is f-ing hard. So you must change your idea that it was ever supposed to be easy. So that was a quote with a Samantha spin. Uh, <laughs> I bet you can guess what it. part was the Samantha spin. <laughs> I think it added to it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And a part of that whole idea is as she writes about her sobriety and her kind of journey to becoming sober. And as she did that at first, she felt like the problem was she didn't know how to be human. And that's what drove her to drugs and alcohol. And at, I think it was her first recovery meeting, or maybe her second, uh, a woman told her, it's okay to feel all of the stuff you're feeling. You're just becoming human again. You're not doing life wrong. You're doing it right. If there's any secret you're missing, it's that doing it right is just really hard. Feeling all your feelings is hard, but that's what they're for. Feelings are for feeling. All of them, even the hard ones. The secret is that you're doing it right and that doing it right hurts sometimes. Right. And then when she talks about feeling it all, she also talks about grief um, and it being a cocoon. I love this when we, um, when she's specifically talking about her sister and her grief and um, loss of marriage. She talks about the fact that she couldn't go with her sister into that cocoon. Um, this was her own. And I think this is a huge lesson people don't understand when we talk about grief. We want to fix things. We don't have mm-hmm. the answers, but we want to fix you. We want to make you happy because we don't want to, you to feel that way either. Um, yeah. Or, you know, we don't want others to feel that way. And oftentimes, we can't be the ones that are the answers. We can't be the ones to give the answers. But just letting people grieve in its purity and its own timing. Mm-hmm. And I, the conclusion of that is, you know, her sister goes into this grief cocoon, comes out and like goes, volunteers, helps people, meets her new husband happily right. in love. So, and let's be honest, that might not always happen, but no. at least you find yourself. No, you, you, if you push those feelings away, it comes from experience, eventually they will, they will find their way out and perhaps in not the way you want. So <laughs> feeling those feelings, which is hard and it sucks but knowing that you're not doing it wrong. And as part of, of this look into humanity and hard feelings, uh, Glennon Doyle, she's really open about her experiences with mental illness and what that has meant for her and what it does mean for her. Yeah, and with that, if you have a diagnosis and there's a treatment plan that includes medication and it works, take it. It's okay to need help. And I love that that was her whole list. Take your pills. No, seriously, if you got them, take that. Lexapro, take it. Like, yeah. I, I did enjoy She's got, it. like, a little checklist. It's great. <laughs> and it's even better when she talks about when she was married to her husband. He was, And he was asked, what would, who would you take on an island? He's like, your mom. And he was like, what else would you take? And he's like, her pills. <laughs> <laughs> but in a loving, supportive but way. But it is. And it's, it's true. Like, And by the way, for people with, like, diagnosis as severe as bipolar or um, depression and all that is not a fix oftentimes and you do need medication and it's okay. So don't stop 
using them. And she even says, if you feel better, it's because of that. So don't stop using them. <laughs> yeah, that was a very, I loved the little checklist take on it. Very good. <laughs> Another thing she talks about a lot, a lot in this book is motherhood. And some of the key takeaways uh, for us is um, pushing children to become their own heroes instead of being their heroes, giving them the tools to be the heroes of their their life, teaching children to be critics of culture. That was a really great scene where she asked her daughter, what do you notice about all these magazines? What would you say women look like? Thin, blonde, whatever. And then she had her daughter look around the store and say, what do women actually look like? Um, so just, you know, being a, a critic of what they're seeing. That whole idea of selflessness that we touched on earlier, uh, teaching our children to to live instead of die. Um, this is a quote. What a terrible burden for our children to know that they are the reason their mothers stopped living. Mm-hmm. And how we we frame motherhood as the more you martyr yourself for your children, the more you love them, which is a damaging way right. <laughs> to look at things. And I connected with this so much. I feel I feel guilty just for being born because I love my mom so much. And she's never, ever, ever made me feel this way. But I feel like I made things harder for her. Right. And I took on that guilt. And it's actually so extreme that I call it my nuclear thought. If I think about it too much, I will cry. Like within 10 seconds. Hmm. How guilty I feel just for being born. So this is a big thing. And I'm glad I wasn't the only one. Right. <laughs> um, to have that sort of feeling. Oh, man. Right. There's a lot to that. I mean, she does talk about, and I loved how she kind of sinks in. I think that's her That's her uh, saying. She sinks into it, stays mm-hmm. in her spot. Um, and then that was her realization as she was looking at herself in the mirror. Like, I have to do this for my children. I have, and then have to ask, wait, why am I doing, why would my children want me to do this for them? Why would they want to sacrifice my happiness? It's not, not my happiness, but who I am. Because mm-hmm. I'm scared to leave because of them. That's such an awful, awful take, an awful thought in, in general. And I know we have jokes about how mothers will say, I brought you into the world and you did, <laughs> you're such a disappointment to me, whatever. I mean, it is a joke. But at the same time, it's true. We should live our lives. That is an example about finding joy and finding and hearing ourselves. Um, yeah. And speaking of that, she talks about being brave. Again, we, we talked a little bit about it before. Stories about how specifically a story about how we were incorrect when we teach our children what bravery means. I do love the ear-piercing story. Uh, mm-hmm. It should be teaching them to advocate for themselves, trust themselves in the face of peer pressure. That means bravery changes depending on the individual. So going against the grain instead of falling for it. And just because someone else does something that seems really brave doesn't mean that's brave for you. Yeah, bravery can look different for different people. And I think we do think of it in one specific way of oh, you did something and you were scared. But doing something, it could be not doing something and you were right, scared. Right. Um, so I really, I loved that too. And I appreciated this after a comment on a social post about how lucky she and Abby were to find each other. Glennon Doyle responded, the braver we are, the luckier we get. So there is an element of luck, but there's also an element of taking those risks and being, not being brave, but like working for it and recognizing those things in you and and going for it, which I love. Um, And as she often says throughout the book, we can do hard things. Right. Yes. So we do have a little bit more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we're back with just a little wrap-up because we've covered a lot of ground. There's a lot of wisdom nuggets in here. (laughs) There are, there are. And one of the big takeaways for me is I often feel like I should have things figured out by now because I am an adult woman. And I don't. Some things I do, but I still feel like I'm going through all of this self-discovery. Sometimes it shocks even me how much I'm learning about myself still. and learning who you are truly and what you want truly and what other people think you are and what they want from you and being able to separate those things out. Um, Feeling these expectations and then 
deciding what expectations you want for yourself and not what other people want to put on you. And it's hard. It's hard. Still hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, I'm working through all all kinds of these things, like eating disorder, sacrificing my happiness for others, and trying to trying to trust myself to know what is it that makes me happy and and figuring that out, trusting myself in general. Um, and then, yeah, that extreme guilt for just existing and working through that. And it is something that is work and I am doing it. Uh, <laughs> I will say, and I do want to come back and discuss this in a mini or something, but I have found it interesting in times of quarantine to see what habits that you were apparently doing for other people and which ones you were doing for you, as in what did you drop immediately when you knew, <laughs> or maybe not immediately, but over time when you knew, okay, well, I'm not around people, so I can get rid of this thing, <laughs> which seems to indicate there's some part of you that, that was just doing that for other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I often, I've really struggled with my worldview and explaining it in a way that doesn't freak people out. Um, and I, it's one of the reasons I connected so much with this book is she talks about it. And it's this feeling, I feel things so much. I feel things so powerfully. And I feel like the world and life is both horrendous and beautiful. And it's incredibly painful. It's incredibly joyous. And those things all exist. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've had friends when I explain this to them, they're like, you see, I don't understand how to you that is a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that it's a good thing, but you have to embrace those things or at least recognize so it's not going to be all happy all the time. Right. And if you think that's what it's going to be, you are in for a letdown. Right. <laughs> right. It's going to really suffer you when right. something really terrible happens. And it will, and it can. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of the world that I lived in where I was really jarred. Um, I grew up thinking that my life was a fairy tale. And that meant that I was supposed to let go of any of my past uh, trauma. And that means that with the fairy tale, it's supposed to be nicely concluded and everybody is just happy instead of seeing the damages that roll around in your bag of body. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I also did appreciate this book. Like I said, it connected on several different levels. And she does talk about being so empathetic that it shuts her down for days. I've done Mm -hmm. that as well. But she has such a positive spin on it. And I love her relationship. She talks about, I love her relationship with her ex-husband as bad as it could have gone, but them as a family unit was beautiful. Her talking about the new girlfriend was so relatable. It's so Mm -hmm. flipping relatable in every way when it comes to Mm -hmm. who you think you are. And you think you're okay. And you think you fixed yourself. And then you're like, oh my God, what is this new element? Yeah. Um, And still realizing, oh yeah, still a lot to learn. I love Mm -hmm. how she would be like, I'm 40 now. I'm 42 now. I'm 44 now. Know, you know, talking about her progression and growth. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that she is so honest that she talks about the divergence of her Christian life to this happy life of what that looked like for her and still carrying a part of that faith in herself. I think mm-hmm. it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah, that's her life. That's incredible. Yeah. She's a, she, of course, has a way with words anyway. But yeah, I think for me, just looking through all of that, there's a lot of Part of me that I, I always kind of hold my breath when it comes to white women. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But there's a part of me that has grown up inundated with the idea that white perspective is the right perspective. Mm-hmm. And therefore, my perspective will always be different and wrong. So mm-hmm. I was kind of holding my breath when I was reading this book. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, what oh my God. I don't know what to think. And then as she unfolds her her conversation and, and the part of racism, like I really liked the way she did not have an answer and she could not say she was right and she could not say she was wrong because this was her perspective. And and um, I know that I've talked to you and our counselor, our therapist about the fact that I have a hard time finding my identity because it's so ingrained in my life because I was raised with a white family about how secondary I am. They mm-hmm. never made me feel that way. But when it comes to the fact that they are very Southern and fairly racist, modern racist, who believe that the right-wing agenda with immigration is the right way, mm-hmm. says a lot about who I am and takes on a lot of conversation and thought process for me. So seeing her book and being as honest as it is was a nice sigh of relief. Um, and I think it's very like 
beautiful in the way she talks about opening ourselves. And I could not imagine breaking away from faith to find happiness yeah. in the way she did it, I guess, because mm-hmm. I definitely did it, but in a different manner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's, it's a, it was a really lovely take. Um, I loved the way she talked about men and boys and about how she talked about allowing him not to do dishes so he can do extra things to say, this is your goal is to be the man and be a leader and not have to help with that house type of thing. And I was like, oh, I like that she comes back to that. And Abby was one of the proponents on teaching her that and then challenging yeah. her kids. It was it was really beautiful. I also loved her take on the fact that we, <laughs> the generational uh, teachings of uh, raising children. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The memo you get. Yeah, the memos. And it was fantastic because she was like, yeah, that's not why our kids suck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of it was just so, even as I'm not a parent, I can relate. Yeah, <laughs> like, I so understand. Much. I've seen hey, that. I was a nanny and I was like, yeah, some of these kids <laughs> suck. <laughs> some yeah. Of these kids are awesome. <laughs> yeah. I found it really refreshing that somebody was communicating, writing things that I had felt but had not seen, um, seen in other media. And right. her whole idea of, what did she say, run towards the pain, like mm-hmm. embrace the pain because it's there for a reason and you can do hard things and you'll work through it and you'll survive it and you'll come out the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, so, so Glidden, who actually responded to our Instagram post when we said we were doing her book club, she said thank you to us. It was very nice. I felt yeah. very special. Uh-huh. Thank you, Glennon, for honesty and sharing your beautiful words with us. Yes, and thank you to all the listeners who suggested yes, it. Yes, and I hope... Yes. Oh, we, I hope we can just do a whole episode where maybe we can do a mini. You guys send us your thoughts and takes and what parts spoke to you, please. And we want to put it up on a mini. Yes, absolutely. And you can send those takes to our email, which is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can also find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. Send in more book suggestions and movie suggestions and episode suggestions, all the suggestions. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 